0: All right. First John chapter 4, um, we are picking up in verse 7 where we left off in verse 6 on last week, so we'll be reading verses 7 through 14, which is the next division in this portion of this epistle. Verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit." And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Last week, we discovered in our study that the fourth chapter of this epistle begins with John's exhortation for every believer to try or prove the spirits and While many people have attributed such an exhortation as is given in chapter 4, verse 1, whenever John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Many people would read this verse and have attributed such an exhortation as John provides here to some form of mysticism, as though this is some mystical statement, like try the spirits, prove the spirits, as though there is some test that we're going to put them through or that we're going to be in some way uh, mystically able to discern or understand what is true and what is not, and and again, in some mystical form or manner or fashion. That's not at all what John is saying, however. Uh, This exhortation or explanation of discernment is in reference to an individual comparing that which one claims with the truth declared within God's Word. So notice it's interesting because he, say, he kind of sort of explains this and clarifies this in the verse itself. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This is somewhat self-explanatory when you understand what John is actually saying. First of all, he's talking to believers, of course, beloved, and so we know believers have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, correct? Then he says... Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. So how would we know whether a spirit is of God or not? Well, obviously, God's spirit dwells in us, but it's not limited to that alone. God's spirit also guides us in all truth in the word of God, teaches us truth from the word of God. And so when he says to try the spirits, the obvious uh, uh, truth that's being stated is that we are to compare that which is stated by whom? false prophets, people that are claiming to be prophets, we are to take what they say and claim, compare it to that which is absolute. What is absolute? Not your feelings, not even your understanding. What's absolute is God's Word. And so we are to take that which is stated or claimed in comparison to God's Word, weigh it against God's Word, put it up against God's Word, and therefore we realize whether or not this is true or whether or not this is of God or whether or not this is of Satan or of the devil. And so the false prophets are key in this. The fact that he says that the, try the spirits to see if they be of God, that is key in this because obviously God's Spirit dwells in us. And believers is key because we are believers in whom God's Spirit dwells. And so the statement John makes has nothing to do with mysticism, has nothing to do with us having some extra biblical discernment by which we are the ones who determine what is of God and what is not. No, the Word of God's already declared what is, what is of Him. He's declared what is of Him. And so we are to weigh all of this and judge all this according to the Scriptures. And so that's what John is stating here. Again, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. John emphasized the assurance we have belonging to Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, yet as well warns that every spirit is not of God. And we are warned in Timothy concerning such In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and and other scriptures also. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 4, 3, 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, and Jude verses 3 and 4, just to name a few references and instances that we looked into last week and studied through this. But we've seen where these are the uh, many of these scriptures show us how that there are false prophets, false teachers, people who come in to deceive, and how that we are to have discernment concerning this. But the discernment again is not some isolated. Uh, uh, discernment that we possess. It's rather the Spirit of God within us testifying of truth, but how do we even know truth? Because of the Word of God. And so the Spirit of God is testifying of the truth of God's Word, and we are to compare, we are to prove, we are to try, we are to test according to Scripture that which is claimed. Listen, the more you know of Scripture, and when I say no, I mean the more you have an understanding of the truth of God's Word, the less likely you are to be swayed and deceived. And Paul deals with that as well when he talks about that we are not to be uh, uh, as tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the only way we will not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine is if we're anchored in truth. Because if we're anchored in truth, then the, the, the swaying winds and the blowing winds and the swaying waters will not, will not remove us from that to which we are anchored, which is Christ and His truth. And so we are to be anchored in truth, and therefore not just tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And the only way that's possible is that we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and His truth. So you must be grounded in truth. You must be rooted in truth. And again, I say to you, one of the great tragedies within the modern-day church is that people are much more concerned about being entertained and much more concerned about being uh, uh, appeased and much more concerned about being... Uh, uh, happy and finding a place where they feel like they quote-unquote belong or what have you than they are with being rooted and grounded in truth. And and it is imperative that we are rooted and grounded in truth, especially in times such as this. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that such mentality within the so-called church exists today is because people have not been rooted and grounded in truth, even know the difference of what the church is supposed to be, biblically defined to be, and what it's manifested to be in so many cases. And so, verses 2 and 3, we read on, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Anyone can make a profession that Jesus is God, and yet live in total contradiction to this truth. So when he says, every spirit that testifies that Jesus has come in the flesh, that does not mean every person who stands up and says, Jesus is Lord, is of God. Obviously not, but rather those who are testifying in this truth, living in this truth, who are submitted to the truth of God and the Spirit of God and and the Lord Jesus, these are the ones where you see the Spirit of God dwelling in them, living in them, Christ dwelling in them. So he's not merely saying if someone makes a statement, if someone simply says, Jesus has come in the flesh. By the way, if you think about a profession of faith or confession unto salvation, confession unto salvation is not merely someone making a statement of salvation. It is a life that is now committed unto Christ because of the working of the Spirit of God within them. And this confession is one of faith, which means now their life will be, or will be uh, uh, cultivated by faith and produced by faith. So it's not merely the words of someone's mouth. And you need to understand that. we know that to be true, obviously, throughout Scripture. And so then he goes on to verse 4. Ye are of God's little children and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So who, are, who, who, who would be the them in this case? Well, obviously, he's talking about those false prophets, the spirit of Antichrist. He is saying, we have overcome them because greater is he that is in you. Greater is the spirit of God dwelling in you than the spirit that is in the world that is of Satan, of, of, of wickedness and of evil. And, and so Satan is powerful, as we know, and many bow to him as the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air, yet we have victory in Christ. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So greater is he who dwells in us. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Those who refuse truth inadvertently open up their hearts to receive all forms of foolishness and deception of Satan. Verse 6, we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now this is a very... uh, uh, defining verse here because John is saying, we are of God, we've been born again, we are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us. So if someone else is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then guess what? They hear the truth spoken by others. And when it says hear, it's not only saying, oh, we we can hear it, obviously audibly, but we are receiving that truth because it is truth. And the spirit of truth dwells in us, the spirit of truth dwells in them. Therefore, as they speak truth, we receive it. When we speak truth, they receive it. And not only receive it in hearing it again audibly, but that we receive it and that now it is transforming our lives. Again, one of the major identifiers of one who truly is a born-again believer in Christ is not that he can quote scripture or that he knows a lot of doctrine, but it's that, or even that he seeks more knowledge because knowledge puffeth up. The desire to know truth to live in truth, and for truth to transform your life is evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. So it's not just saying I want to know more, but it's I want to be transformed by the truth of God's Word. I want to be transformed by the truth of the Spirit bearing witness of that truth in my life, in my heart. And so there's the evidence that is present. And so he says that that we are of God, our hearts and ears have been tuned into his voice rather than that of the world. And by this, John says, we know the spirit of truth, that is, the spirit is of God, and the spirit of error, that is, that the spirit is of Satan. And those who are of God receive truth, desire truth, and submit to truth. And one of the clear, again, pieces of evidence of those who know the Lord is that they love the truth, they seek after the truth, they desire the truth, and as much so as they desire to know the truth, they desire for that truth to transform them and transform their lives. So in verse 8, and now moving forward, John makes a statement, and we're going to deal with verse 7 here in just a moment, but in verse 8, John made a statement, he made this declaration, God is love. And the last statement here in verse 8 has often been quoted without giving any consideration to its immediate context. This statement has been used many to completely define God as though God is only love, or as if there is nothing more to his character or being than that of love. Now, there is an immediate context that is provided within this passage of Scripture. God is love is not a standalone statement in this Scripture. Neither is a standalone statement in all of the Bible. Now, is God love? Yes, without question. But this is not a standalone statement. And what I mean by that is this, it is... It is intended to be read within the context in which it is provided. In other words, you cannot take God is love, the last part of verse 8, as though this is an all-defining verse of who God is. God is love, but again, remember something. When John even writes this, who is he writing to? He's writing to his beloved, verse 7, "...let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God." For God is love. So there's an immediate context provided here that must not be ignored. And it is imperative imperative that we understand this truth. Because otherwise, people will again take this one statement, God is love, at the end of this verse, totally remove it from any context, and now try to define the entire being of God by this one statement. And that's just not... You cannot do so being honest and truthful in Scripture, with Scripture... And, of course, with the context of what is being stated at all. So John is not using this statement to define the person of God, but rather to explain the truth. And here's what you must understand in this context. John is not using the statement to define the person of God, but rather to explain the truth of the significance and irrefutable transforming power of God's love. In other words... John's statement, God is love, is a statement that explains one cannot know or possess God's love without his love transforming them and manifesting itself through them. This is the context. You see it in verses 7 8. We'll read them in just a moment again. So within this passage, John deals with God's love and as well the impact that his love makes in the life of the one who has experienced such love. So let's look at verse 7 and 8 again. And pay attention to the last part of verse 8, but do so in relation to the entirety of this context. Beloved, let us love one another. So here John is saying, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of God, let us love one another. That love should be manifesting itself in and through our lives. And then he says, for love is of God. God is the author of love. God is the origin of love. So love comes from him. And everyone that loveth, is born of God. Now, wait a minute. If God is the origin of love and we are born of God, then that means that love is now part of our spiritual DNA. We have received his love. We now love because he has loved us. We love him and we love others because he loves us. Then he goes on to say, everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Oh, wait a minute. Now we're talking about knowing God, knowing him relationally, but also knowing him in growth. The fact of the matter is, if love is of God, I am a follower of Christ, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I now, being born of God, possess his love within me, but also I know him, and I know this love that he possesses. I know this love which, which comes, emanates from him in the person of his son, ultimately, of course. So it, whoever, everyone that loveth is born of God, And knoweth God. Now verse 8. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. So here he's making this again, making a clear distinction. John is saying, if you know God, it's only because you know his love. If you know his love, it's only because you know God. And he says, and therefore... Love is now part, again, of your spiritual DNA. It is what is within you now. His love is now flowing from you within you because you've received his love. Then if you love not, he that loveth not does not know God, does not know anything of his love and does not know anything of his person and does not know anything of his character. Now the next statement for God is love. The emphasis here is not defining who God is. The emphasis is saying, if you truly know him, then you know that he is love. But the only way you can know he is love is that you know him. So you cannot separate the statement, God is love, apart from those who know him and know his love in the person of his son. So the people who just go out and say, oh, God is love, God is love. If you don't know Christ, you don't know God's love. If you don't know God's love, it's because you don't know Christ. Are you following? And therefore, to make a statement, God is love, as this is the all-defining definition of who God is, is absolute error. Though God is love without question, the emphasis within the context is, if you are born again, you love God, you love others, because God's love is now dwelling in you through the person of his Son, and now his love is being manifested through you. And if you do not love God, you do not love others, then you're not of God because God himself is love. He is the origin of love, and he is love. And so you cannot say, I love God and not love my brother, and John's going to get into that later on. You cannot say, I love God, but I don't love the church. You cannot say, I love God... And I don't love his son. It's impossible. You can make those statements, but you cannot. those, Those claims are absolutely false to make such a claim because if you do not love Christ, you do not love God. If you do not love the church, you do not love God. If you do not love your fellow believer, whether they're part of the local body you attend or not, then you do not love God. And so you know nothing of his love. You do not know him. God's love literally is is a spring which continues to flow without fail to those who have been redeemed. And although God's love is beyond explanation, He has revealed His love in our Lord Jesus Christ in such a manner that we can experience His love in the most meaningful manner. And that's because of Christ. So here's what's being said in John 4, 1 John 4, 7 and 8 specifically. One cannot withhold God's love. You cannot possess God's love and it not be manifested and demonstrated through your life it's an impossibility for God is love and if God dwells in you then guess what else is in you God's love and if God is dwelling in you and his life is now being lived in you then guess what's being demonstrated through your life God's love that's what John is saying here so again is God love absolutely but the context is not an all-defining statement concerning who God is let me ask you this is God holy of course he is is god just of course he is does god demonstrate and execute his wrath let me show you something about god god is holy and that is absolutely identifying who god is everything about god is holy but not everything about god is loving think about this for a moment the person who perishes you can't say oh it's such a loving wrath But you can say this, it's a holy wrath. Can't you? You can't say, oh, God is so loving in his judgment of the wicked. No, but he's holy in his judgment of the wicked. So God is holy, absolutely. And it's only twice in scripture, both Old Testament Isaiah and the New Testament Revelation, that we are told that God is holy, holy, holy. Thrice holy, in both Old and New Testament, that is declared. So is God love? Yes. But is that all defining of who God is? No. But everything about God, everything God does, everything God has in his purpose and plan is holy. Even his wrath is holy. Even his justice is holy. Even his judgment is holy. Are you seeing this? As is his love, is holy. But you cannot say God has loving wrath. Now his love is demonstrated in contrast to his wrath, and we understand his love even more so because of his wrath. We really can. But that's also including grace and the mercy of God. But you cannot say this is a loving, wrathful act of God. You know, this is a wrathful act of God, and it's not loving. But regardless of whether or not it's loving, it is holy. Because he is holy. And this is who he is. Everything God does is from the essence of his holiness. And that's what we must understand. So you cannot take this statement, because when you look throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, when it says holy, 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 it's declaring that God is three times thrice holy and this is who he is. God is love in this context, again, is not simply, it, it, or it's not, it's not, the purpose of the statement is not to give an all-defining description of who God is, it's to say you cannot claim that you know God and you cannot claim that you love God or possess his love without that love also flowing through you because God is love. And he's the very origin and source of love. And so because of this, for one to make such a claim, John is making this distinction again, as he does throughout this epistle, of the the truthfulness of those in fellowship, the authenticity of fellowship with God, and the hypocrisy of those who would claim to be in fellowship with God and yet possess no fellowship with him whatsoever. So it's, imper- and it's important, imperative that we, that we get this, that we understand this. So again, don't misunderstand what I am saying. Is God love? Yes, God is love. But that, again, is not an all descriptive, defining statement of what, who God is. It, it, there's a context here that must be recognized and understood. In fact, it's interesting, For then he uses the conjunction for here, does he not? For God is love. For God is love. That's obviously connecting us to what's already been stated. And the statement is, again, that you cannot possess God's love without that love demonstrating itself in your life. And to claim you possess God's love and His love not be flowing from your life, you don't know God, you are a liar. As John's already stated in the previous text. Sure, But here we find, when he says God is love, again, it's not an all-defining statement of who God is, though God is love. Yes, the context is important. And you have to read it and understand that. Because otherwise, everybody saying, oh, God is love, God is love. Are you going to tell the man perishing tonight that he's experiencing God's love? See, that, that makes absolutely no sense. But can you say God's wrath is holy? Yes, absolutely. So the essence of the being of God is holiness. He is set apart. There's none other as he is. Now, he does have a love, and he is love in a sense that none other can mimic or imitate that love. That's true, too. But again, not everything God does is out of his love, whereas everything he does is out of his holiness. Everything. There's not anything God does that is not holy. But not everything God does is loving. And that must be understood. But it's holy nonetheless. So one cannot withhold God's love. His love is bigger than we are, and yet he has deposited his love within us. Are you hearing this? His love is bigger than us. And yet, where has he deposited his love? In us. Look at the common logical sense here. The point being, this is bigger than you and me. And because of that, we cannot contain his love without it overflowing from us. You cannot put a gallon of milk in a quart jug without what? Without it overflowing, it cannot contain it all. You can keep pouring, but it's just going to start coming out. That's how it is with God's love in our life. God's love has been deposited in us, but guess what? It is just flowing, because it's like a spring. It's just flowing from us. It's not something we can bottle up and put a cap on it, as many would profess or believe to be. Who have experienced such love cannot contain it within themselves. His love flows from his heart to ours and therefore from our heart to others. God's love within us produces a love for others, especially those who are also believers in Christ. And in this verse, John emphasizes the truth that if one does not love, then he is not of God because God is love. If one does not love, he does not know God because God is love. So once again, this is not a complete of who God is, but it is a description of God's love and of God being the source of love, the origin of love, and that his love cannot simply be bottled up and contained within the one who possesses this love. It's important to take notice also that John doesn't just say that God is loving, but God is love. He is the source of this love. So it's not just he is loving, but he is love, but again, not an all-inclusive description of who or what God is verses 9 and 10. And here John explains further. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, it doesn't say the love of God began when he gave his son. Notice, and that you can't read that verse this way because it even starts out by saying, and this was manifested the love of God toward us. So God's love is an eternal love which is now manifested in time. Hence, the eternal purpose of God, we find in the fullness of the time, God sent His Son in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh in the fullness of the time. But... The eternal purpose was already purposed and planned, and then in time, this began to be manifested. This is the manifestation of God's love. This is not the beginning of God's love. This is not the origin of God's love. It's not that God decided, oh, I guess I'll love mankind and now give my son. No, this is the manifestation of his love to us, as John so adequately stated, and so did Paul in his epistle to Romans, whenever he said, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God commendeth, God demonstrated, God manifested His love toward us. And that's what John says here. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's love was manifested, obviously, through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, Paul wrote that Christ may dwell in your hearts in this prayer for the Ephesians, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, maybe it will comprehend with all saints what is breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, interesting statement here because Paul says his prayer is that you might know the love of God or the love of Christ which passeth all knowledge. So that you might know that which passeth all knowledge so that we might experience and realize that which we can never fully comprehend. Because what is its breadth? What is its its length? What is its depth? What is its height? Paul expresses his desire for those believers to know the love of Christ, which passeth all knowledge. And the breadth here, of course, describes its effectiveness to every nation, to all men. Because remember, Jesus did not come only for the Jew. Remember? For God so loved the world, talking about Jew and Gentile alike. Not just the Jew. He came unto his own, his own, received him not. But he loved the world. And and all throughout the Old Testament, you find the prophecies declared that God would raise unto himself a people that were not a people that now would become his people. Who is he talking about? The Gentiles. So this was prophesied before. So Christ didn't just come for the Jew. He came unto his own, his own, received him not. But he came and died for the sins of the world, for all people groups. The length describes its eternality. God's love is forever. The depth describes its ability to reach lower than any man could ever go or ever be. There is no one beyond the reach of God's love. The height describes its ability to lift us up to reconcile us to God. Not only does God reach as low as man is to redeem us, but He picks Him up to reconcile us to Himself. The height of His love exceeds our expectations, our understanding. Again, John 3.16, you know the verse, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Charles Spurgeon said, "'Come, ye surveyors, bring your chains, and try to make a survey of this word so.' Nay, that is not enough. "'Come hither, ye that make our national surveys, and lay down charts for all nations. Come, ye who map the sea and land, and make a chart of this word so.' Nay, I must go further. Come hither, ye astron- astronomers, that with your optic glass espouse spaces before which imagination staggers. Come hither and encounter calculations worthy of all your powers. When ye have measured the horns in space, here is a task that will defy you. God so loved the world. Romans eight, thirty eight and 39, Paul expresses the significance of this love. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So where is God's love? In Christ. Can a man know anything of God's love apart from Christ? No. And this is what's so important in the gospel. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and throw this out here because it's worthy to be said at this point. The gospel is not going around telling everybody that God loves them. That is not the gospel. That is a perversion of the gospel. Because where is God's love? In Christ. So if someone's not in Christ, do they know about God's love? Are they experiencing God's love? No. They are experiencing the manifestation of God's love in that he gave a son and God committed, God demonstrated. It is love to them. So let me show you where the power of gospel has been totally stripped away from the gospel by man's failure to understand the gospel. By going to people and saying, God loves you. Well, if that's true, God's love is eternal and God's love is unconditional and God's love is irrevocable. So if that is true, then that person's really fine. Think about what I'm saying to you. Or let me ask this question. At what point is God going to stop loving them? When they die? Oh, I'll love you until you die and then I'm Casting you in the hell in the lake of fire. No, that's not the gospel. Here's the gospel the gospel is that you are born under the wrath and judgment of a holy God. And you cannot fix this problem. There's nothing you can do to measure up to the righteousness which God requires, which is the person of Jesus Christ Himself. So there's nothing you can do to measure up to God's righteousness to meet His holy standard. You are hopeless, you are helpless and there's nothing you can do to fix it, as much as you will try to fix it, you can't fix this problem. But here's the wonderful news. You don't have to fix the problem. You can't fix the problem. Why? Because God has made provision for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's so important for you to recognize. God has demonstrated his love as Scripture declares. God has manifested his love as Scripture declares to all of mankind, to all people. But here's what you must understand. If God's love is in the person of his son, is the scripture not declared that's exactly where it is? Is it or is it not in Christ? So if God's love has been demonstrated, manifested, and is in the person of his son, God loved us through his son. That's what John is saying. That's what Paul is saying. And if that is true, when men are born and continue to reject Christ, they are also rejecting God's love. So men are under the wrath of God, rejecting the love of God. But God has made provision for us in his Son that we might know him and know his love. This is the gospel. And there's the power of the gospel. You are helpless and hopeless, but God has made provision. You are not in God's love. You know nothing of God's love because you are born rejecting Christ. You continue to reject Christ. Therefore, you are willingly, willfully rejecting God's love. But God made provision. He has demonstrated His love and manifested His love in His Son. And there's the gospel. So don't go telling people God loves them. Tell them God has demonstrated His love, God has manifested His love. But if, you are not, if you've not received Christ, then you are guilty of rejecting His love. You know nothing of His love. And don't be telling people God loves you. God is not, they're not in God's love. God does not love them as you are portraying He loves them. Because they know nothing of his love. But he has demonstrated that love and manifested that love. That they might, those whom he will graciously, mercifully redeem, will be drawn by that love into relationship with him. And by the way, apart from God intervening, men don't want to love God. And men don't want God's love. Here's what men want. They want to escape God's wrath without ever having his love. They don't want God. They don't want a Lord. They want a Savior who's not a Lord. They want somebody to do something for them to help them, but yet they don't want Him having any rights or ruling or lordship in their life. But that's not salvation at all. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought also to love one another. In these verses, John makes the argument that those who have received such love, as we've mentioned, God's love, are to allow God's love to permeate them and overflow to one another. Loving others is not based on their worth or their merit of our love any more so than God's expression of love for us is based on our merit or our worth. You know, we think we should love people who deserve our love. We really do. That's how we view it, do we not? That's our sinful nature to do so. Listen, your love for others, especially those of the body of Christ, is no more dependent on their worth of your love then God's love for you is dependent on your worth of His love. We love Him because He first loved us, and if His love has been deposited in us, then we love others because of His love in us, not because we're worthy of love. Because by the, as a matter of fact, there's not one of us worthy of God's love. There's not one of us worthy of God slaying His Son on our behalf. There's not one of us worthy of God uh, sending His Son on our behalf. Not one of us are worthy of this. Loved us, we not only can but should love each other with that same love, God's love through us. Verses 12 and 13. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now notice this. If we love one another as followers of Christ, as believers, then God's love is in you. If you love one another with God's love, godly love, it's only because his love is in you. That's what John is saying. And is being perfected in you. That love continually is being perfected. We should fall more so in love with, the, with the, the church of the Lord Jesus as we grow in faith and knowledge of He who has loved us. We should be more so in love with His truth, with, with God Himself, with His Son, and with His Word, and with the church than ever before because His love is being perfected in us. Hereby, verse 13, know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. So His Spirit in us is that Spirit of love and God has given us His Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and we know that we dwell in Him, and He dwell in us because of His Spirit's presence, which is evidenced, of course, by the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul declares in Galatians 5, and the evidences of the Spirit, as, Paul's already, or as John has declared in this epistle already, these tests that he has laid out for us so clearly in these chapters of 1 John. So he says, no man's ever seen God at any time. And the argument here is, you claim you love God, but you've not seen God, but here's who you do see. You see your brother. So to claim you love God and yet not love your brother, then you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You know nothing of God. So God has chosen to reveal His love in and through us to each other, though we have never seen Him. Our love for one another is the evidence of God living within us. We are commanded to be distributors, not manufacturers of God's love. His love is to be, We are to be conduits in which His love is flowing through us, ministering to others through us. And it's through His presence and the love that He produces within us that His love accomplishes its work in us. It is by this love that we know we have a spirit, that we are living in Christ, and Christ is living in us. Verse fourteen, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John again reminds us that he was an eyewitness of the humanity and deity of the Lord Jesus. John explains that Jesus is the Son of God, and that God sent His Son in the flesh to die as the atonement, the propitiation. Or man's sin is the savior of mankind. So God's love not only changes the way that we look at the Lord, now He is our Father, but as well changes the way we look at others. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And the very foundation of Christianity is God's love. But when I say that, I'm not saying that in a generic sense. The very foundation of Christianity is, is the fact that God demonstrated and manifested His love through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And this results and produces a love in us for Him that also cultivates and produces a love in us for others. John will go on to clearly ask the question, how can you say you love God whom you've not seen and yet do not love your brother whom you do see? How can you claim that you love God and it's his love in you if love is not being demonstrated through your life? How can that be? So really, you have, again, another evidence or another test of what it is to be in fellowship with God. And we must understand again that God is love, as scripture so clearly states it. But many people have taken this passage, verse eight, that latter statement, for God, and they don't say for God is love, they just say God is love. And so they totally disconnect the conjunction which is connecting it to the previous truths of what's been stated, the context. And many people will again attempt to to claim that this is really who God is. God is love. Yes, God is love. But that's not the context. In which this is written is not stating this is the all inclusive description or definition of who God is. It is saying that you cannot say you know God's love and know Him without His love being manifested, demonstrated through your life because He is love. And if He is present in you, guess what? And by the way, let me say this to you as well. People want to say God is love and they want that to be an absolute statement to the entire world oh, God is love. Again, to reject Christ is to reject His love. And by the way, the only people who know that God is love are those who are in His love. The world does not know that God is love because they don't know His love and they don't know Him. And how can they know this about Him when they don't know Him? So God is love is a statement made to us as believers Saying that he is love, his love is in us, therefore his love will throw, flow through us. And if his love is not overflowing in our lives, then guess what? You don't know him and you don't know his love. And that's what John is saying. So there we have it. Is God love? Yes. But he's love to us who've received that love. To unbeliever, God is not love, God is wrath. God is judge. Are you following To us who are believers, He's our Father. And those whom He loves, He chastens. But those who receive not chastening, He doesn't love. Because if He loves, He chastens, and yet there are those who receive not chastening, which means that they are not sons, and they are not loved of God. But as those whom He loves, He is our what? He is our Father. But those who know nothing of His love, He is not their father, he is their judge. And they know nothing of his love and will know only his wrath, apart from his divine intervention, bringing them to his love in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is powerful. When it's understood, when it's declared as the scripture declares it to be, when truth is declared as scripture declares it to be, this is powerful. What's happened is men have attempted to water down the truth out of either ignorance or just trying to be pragmatic. And what a shame it is. We have a God who is love, but the only people who know that are the people who are in his love. And that, is, that includes those who are in the person of Christ who know him. Because the love of God is in Jesus Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're not in his love. But if you're in Christ, you're in his love. What a wonderful truth. So we know him, and we know his love because we know him. And we know his love and we know him because we know Christ, because he sent Christ as a propitiation for our sins. He is now our Lord. He is now our Savior. And and God is our Father, not our foe. He is not our enemy. He is not our judge in the sense of his wrath being poured out in judgment upon us because his judgment and his wrath for all those who are in his love, his judgment and his wrath was exhausted upon his Son. There is no more wrath of God for me none. There is no wrath reserved for me. It was all exhausted upon his son. But that does not mean that there are not those whose God's wrath is still not reserved for. And there are many. And Peter speaks of that. Does God not know how to reserve the wicked until the day of judgment, the outpouring of his wrath? Of course he does. So God is love. He is our father. We know him. And it's evident we know him because his love flows through us and overflows through our lives.